Double, double, toil and trouble, fireball and cauldron bubble. Poor cow's blood that has eaten her nine pharaohs. That's sweating from the murderer's gibbet, thrown to the flame. Finger of birth strangled babe. Ditch delivered by a drab. Make the cruel. Thick and suave. Like a hellbroth boil and bubble. For a charm of powerful trouble. When shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning? Or in rain, when the hurly burly's done, when the battle's lost and won, that will be as a set of sun there to meet with. though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, the owner of the website that powers the program, spidey-dude.com. And I am the executive producer of the network that powers the program, the Spidey Dude Radio Network. Before we get started, though, I wanted to thank our patrons at patreon.com slash network: Greg, Jurgen, Vinkman, Scott, Kaylee, and Phoenician. Thank you for your support. And if you want to get the show, this show earlier, check it out there, as well as other fine perks that you'll get whenever you become a Patreon subscriber. There will be some exclusive content that's only for Patreon subscribers coming to you very soon. But before I turn it over to our hosts, I want to encourage you to check out our other fine programs, such as Spidey Dude Experience, ASM Classics, Make Mine Mayday, Bogan Rider Variety Hour, the Salby Sima Era Podcast, Clone Saga Chronicles, and a spectacular radio, a spectacular Spider-Man-related show that start a few familiar names to the program. Please follow the network on Twitter, at Spidey Dude Radio, and this show, at From Erie, and feel free to send them feedback at gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast catcher, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeartRadio Podcasts, Amazon Audible, as well as Google Podcasts. It helps us raise our visibility and like, share, and subscribe for more at Spidey Dude Network, youtube.com slash Spidey Dude Network. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, as I mentioned the Twitter threads, but also follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Spidey Dude Network, as well as Instagram, if you like Instagram, instagram.com slash Spidey Dude Network. With that out of the way, it's absolutely my pleasure to introduce the hosts of our show, Jennifer Lil Anderson and Greg Bashansky. Welcome back, Gargoyles fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Let me introduce my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hey, everyone. 
And I'm the other co-host, Greg Bashansky. And rejoining us as usual is the co-creator, supervising producer of the first two seasons of Gargoyles and the writer of the SLG. And by now you should probably have your copy in hand, Dynamite Comic, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hello. And before we dive into the penultimate episode of City of Stone, we have some news. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York. Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. The big news item, the first issue of Dynamite Gargoyles, issue one, came out. Woohoo! And Yay. Uh, hopefully by now, mo- at least most of you have your copies, and if, you, and if your store is sold out of physical copies or didn't get them in, you can always buy it digitally on Amazon or Comixology. It's there, you can get it. Please do. Because it is fantastic. We're not going to do a deep dive on this until a long time from now, because we're going in chronological order for these stories. But we will share our initial thoughts on this first issue. And um, when I read it, it felt like... I've had this feeling several times over the last two decades. You lose touch with, with old good friends. You don't see them for a very long time, years, sometimes even over a decade... And then you meet them, and not only do you catch up quickly, it's like they never left. You pick up right where you left off. That's how I felt reading this book. Yeah, jumped in with both feet, and I and immediately like fell into the world. Um, uh, it's gorgeous. It's it's like nothing's frivolous. Nothing like it's it's getting to the point. And I really enjoyed everybody's banter as they were all introduced to us. Same here. It's nice to the characters who previously didn't have dialogue ever now have it. Hi, Katana. Nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice huh? to see their personalities popping out, too. It was pretty cool. Especially Nash. Don't call Especially him Nashville. Nash. <laughs> a, lot of fun, a lot of fun moments, a lot of fun dialogue. Uh, Jen, did you burst out laughing, too, at Goliath's little Batman quote? Good work, Cape Crusader. Once again, you've saved our fair city from those vile miscreants. They were no problem, Commissioner. For as we all know, criminals are a superstitious, cowardly lot. They plan and plot, but they always get caught. Their evil schemes all come to naught. A superstitious, cowardly lot. Uh, Okay, so, yeah, I, uh, yeah, the whole, (laughs) I could hear it in my head. I could hear the, them talking to each other in my head about that, and it was perfect. I loved it. So good. The way, the way it was with the art, I pictured him saying that, the way he said in Awakening Part 1 about the Vikings, I can scare those cowards away without any help. And then Elisa immediately diffuses him. And, and then he comes back with the, oops, updraft, you know, like, <laughs> like, I, like, that's the voice I was hearing in my head, like... Greg, considering that you once had to write a memo about the differences between Gargoyles and Batman, how many years have you waited to have Goliath say that? Um, I don't think I have, actually. I think the as I was writing, you know, I I block out the issue uh, by pages, you know, um, but then you know I I go in and actually write it, right? You know, I uh, and. I just thought, oh, this would fit here nicely. It's kind of funny. Um, I don't think I had, like, long-term thoughts of, oh, I've waited 30 years to write that. I haven't. 
Um, uh, it just felt like, oh, this fits, and he says it, and, and then she's like, wait, Batman? And he's like, who? <laughs> like, he doesn't know. <laughs> um, she's like, never mind, forget it. His um, face there is great, though. Like, <laughs> On some level, I'm always, like, wondering, like, you know, will the powers that be even let me put that line in there? Or are they going to say, oh, you can't do that? A superstitious cowardly lot. They plan and plot, but they always get caught. Their evil schemes all come to naught. A superstitious... There's there a, a couple of things as as I was reading it going, yeah, that wouldn't have flown if it was on TV. That That wouldn't have happened. One of them for me was the Dracon Drug Lab. I don't think he would have been allowed to mention that on Disney Afternoon back in the day, especially 1994, 1995, the height of the war on drugs. Uh, Unless it was a very special episode. I I don't know, like, I mean, the rules for Goliath Chronicles were very different um, on ABC, but, uh, you know, our rules in Cation were whatever we thought our rules were, you know, I mean, we defined it. Uh, I think there were, I don't think there's anything in this issue that I couldn't have done on, uh, back on the show. Honestly, I don't, um, even the mention of the drug lab, it's not like we're saying, Oh, and this cool drug lab, wasn't it? You know, like we were pro drug lab or something <laughs> like that. You know? Yeah, um, bitch. We, uh, so uh, I don't, I honestly, I don't think there's anything in here that, that, um, I mean, I'm flipping through the pages now. I don't think there's anything in here that we couldn't have done back in the day. Nothing's striking me that way anyway. Uh, I, I basically, you know, I'm just trying to match the tone as it evolved out of the original first two seasons of the show. I think, uh, probably the SLG books got a little, um, edgier and darker than Disney would let us do now um, or would let us do way back when. Um, but, but this feels of a piece with what we did in, in the 90s um, on the show, at least the first two seasons. Again, I think Goliath Chronicles, which, you know, I don't really consider to be canon, um, probably had much stricter uh, S&P standards. It wasn't Adrian doing the S&P for, for Goliath Chronicles. It was the ABC S&P people doing it, and they had very uh, strict rules relative to what uh, Adrian let us do and let us talk through it with her and that kind of thing. And so I feel like this is more along the lines of those first two seasons. Whereas the SLG, I think, um, after the first issue of Gargoyles for SLG. I don't think anyone at Disney was paying attention to what we were doing. I got away with a lot of stuff that, that I don't no. think I could have if, if anyone had been watching. Nice. Also, uh, speaking of easing new readers in and not bogging them down with too much information, I thought you did that with the character of Sherry brilliantly because the SLG stuff is long since out of print. Hopefully it'll come back into print soon. So, but... You don't need to know who she is here. You don't even need to know she's a member of the Illuminati, although eagle-eyed viewers will spot that pendant she's wearing. You don't draw too much attention to it. You just All you need to figure out is, oh, Thalog's got a spy down there. 
And, but to the people uh, who yeah, have read you know, the I SLG, mean, you get that, like, you see her in the midst and you're like, oh, what's going on? So it works both ways. I mean, that was a challenge throughout the issue. Frankly, I had a lot of characters to introduce, some of which, you know, uh, if you have any passing familiarity with Gargoyles, you probably know, like, you know, Broadway, Goliath, Louisa, et cetera. Um, some of which, you know, are deeper dives into the series like Cold Stone and Cold Fire. And some of them, because the SLG stuff is hard to get, you're like, wait, what? Who? Uh, why does Brooklyn have one eye? You know, and so there, it was a challenge. You know, I, I didn't want to stop the story. Um, even with Elisa's narration, I didn't want to stop the story to, okay, let's, we're on a train here. We're going to stop the train, get off here. I'm going to show you some dioramas. Then we can get back on the train, you know? So I just sort of limited myself to what I thought, what do they need to know now to understand this story? You know, at some point we're obviously going to, um, get into a story that Katana is heavily involved in. Um, and then we'll delve into her origins more. Um, but for now, it's just like he met her in feudal Japan. Yeah. Don't ask, you know, I mean, well, like, like the cold stone, cold right fire. Now. Like she, she says, like, I realize it sounds pretty complicated. That's, but that's all you need to know. And that's all right. we needed so, to know for this issue. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was sort of the game of the issue, whether it's Tomash Brode or, uh, or, uh, Nash or whoever. It's like, let me tell you what you need to know right now. There's backstory. Some of it's available to you. Some of it might be harder to find. Eventually we'll get to all of it, but right now here's what you need to know. And that was what Elisa's voice allowed us to do because, you know, I've got Sally's voice as Elisa in my head, obviously just the way you guys do. And, and I can just hear Elisa going, you know, Lisa's the type of person who, let me cut to it. Let me cut to the chase. You know, that's her style. So it made it easier to uh, intro people without getting us bogged down by using Elisa as the narrative voice. And, and this, I guess, is a spoiler. So ready? Spoilers. Um, but the idea is to have uh, every issue uh, with a different character uh, POV narrating. Um, so Elise is here in issue one, but the next issue is going to be a different character. I'm not going to say who yet. Next issue, a third character, etc. At least through the first dozen or so. Oh, I like that. I like I that a lot. I think that's going to be good. Yeah, and there was so much fun stuff during this. That uh, reveal of Thalog at the end was uh, really nice. Uh, piece of artwork as well. He just looks so smug leaning back in. I assume that's Dominique Destine's office from Hunter's Moon Part 3. And, uh, just they, so we- they, did a little, they did a little thing with the art where they had they showed Goliath just uh, from the nose down nose to chin and then when we get to Thalog, it's the same art but colored different and I thought that was like, I don't know if they did it to just save time but it was freaking brilliant as far as as I was concerned to okay, just so see the, how different and how it's like not liter- it's not literally the same art because Thalog has his helmet. Thing well, okay. Eyes. Yes. But it's, <laughs> but that was honestly my idea. 
I mean, I was like, let's make these two panels, uh, the one where Goliath's talking about criminals being a superstitious and cowardly lot, and the one where uh, Thalog says, no, not yet. I actually suggested to George that he um, make those two panels really similar. I, um, I loved it. Like it's great. Great. I love it so much. And also, Glenn, I was about to say a little bit of shipper's bait there because Lexington learns the British term for making out. In case he needs to go to the UK to, you know, snug someone. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Actually, part of that snogging line is, is, is for that purpose, but part of it is also to just make my kids laugh because um, when they were little, my kids... Well, I still call my kids, but they, of course, are fully grown adult human beings. Um, although I don't know who gave them permission to, to do that. But um, <laughs> uh, when they were little, you know, I read the Harry Potter books to them. And at one point, um, we were reading about, you know, Ron snogging Lavender Brown and... Um, and just the word snogging, which they didn't know what it meant initially, but they just thought it was hilarious. I mean, and it was hilarious watching them laugh every time I said snog or snogging or snogged. Um, it just cracked them up every single time. So I, uh, in part, the reason that that's in here is, uh, is uh, to make my kids laugh. But also for the Lexington purposes, just like you thought. Everything has to serve multiple functions because you've got so little page space. Well, you did well. Hooked right back in. Can't wait for issue two. And um, reading it was just joyous. I absolutely loved it. I could hear every character's voice in my head. And you mentioned a minute ago hearing Sally's Elisa in your head. I almost teared up a bit because I could hear Ed Asner in my head. Not just with Hudson, but with Jack Dane. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of lines for Hudson or Jack in here, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I've got all these voices in my head. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm mentally unstable, but, um, but yeah, when I write these characters, it's like bringing it all home to me and, uh, um, it's the next best thing to getting them all together in a booth and playing it out. All right. Jen, do you have any other thoughts about the issue? I've I've got a ton, but I'll I'll save it. I'll save it for now. Yeah, me too. So much to talk about down the line, <laughs> right? And we we'll... and we do have an episode to get to. So yes, we have one more bit of news, lesser news. Beast Kingdom unveiled an updated version of their uh, Goliath action figure, and it's uh, it looks a little bit more animation accurate and less stylized than the NECA stuff. It's also $104. I mean, you know, if you want it, buy it. I think I might be skipping this one because, again, so much is coming out now. I feel like I'm being priced out, and I'm happy about that. Yes. How is that? What does the NECA ones cost? I don't know what... The NECA NECA ones cost... More expensive, less expensive? The NECA ones cost about, on average, $40 apiece. This new one, which comes with less stuff, by the way, and it's about the same size, costs over $100. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be sticking with the NECA. Yeah, I think I'm going to be sticking with the NECA. I wonder if it's like, a, is it like an economy of scale, like uh, how many they anticipate selling kind of thing? I wonder why the price is so different. I mean, yeah. I know nothing about that side of it, but... 
Yeah, I have no idea either. They, they just they just revealed <laughs> that they didn't do a press conference about it. So, <laughs> but hey, it's everyone. It's there to pre-order if you wanted. It comes out in twenty twenty-four. Twenty-four. Wow, they're advertising it now. Yeah, in time for the thirtieth anniversary. Oh, good lord. <laughs> Ouch! Ouch! This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. A superstitious, cowardly lot. All right, <laughs> let's dive into the episode itself. Um, we've. I am amused, though. As great as this four-parter is, sometimes flaws can't be helped. Elisa wakes up facing in the wrong direction, as if, and starts talking as if she were talking out of the clock tower to them on the balcony. Yeah. Yeah, but that. But see, the shot looked better because you see her like face, and then the clock behind her. You know, so it just looked prettier, and I'm pretty sure that's why it's like that. <laughs> it's. I'm 100% sure that's why it's like that. It doesn't make any sense that she'd be facing... Inward. From her point of view, she was heading outside... To warn them. the gargoyles hadn't woken up yet. Yeah. So she was going to be there when they woke up. And she wakes up shouting. And even that doesn't make sense. Honestly, it doesn't. You know, the last thing she thought was they're stones. So she's waiting for them to wake up. So if... From her point of view, those 12 or so hours blinked in and blinked out. Um, then she'd assume that they'd still be stone or were just about to, you know, break free, right? Um, but she's already yelling as if the last thing she saw was all of them right in front of her. Hey, guys! But that wasn't the last thing she saw, so none of it makes any sense. But yeah, it kind of works. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I also, know, in the context of this episode, independent of where we left her off, um, it kind of works. <laughs> we get away with it, I think. Um, and it makes me nuts, but but uh, it's not as egregious as the wrong Demona models in part one, so that's fine. <laughs> you know, you know, it's all fine. And I also enjoy that scene at Pac Media Studios with Xanatos and Owen. We get a lot more information on the rules of magic as well that you I especially like that you need to be a trained sorcerer you can't just pick up a spell book and start reciting Latin which I find a lot of other fantasy series take for granted all I can think of is Cabin in the Woods <laughs> I draw the line line of fucking sand you can't don't read the Latin <laughs> I, I like that it's more complicated than that, and uh, I I think we get a nod to uh, to Owen's true self here with the mixing magics is dangerous thing, um, right? Cause, yeah, cause, um, so you know, so that even in hindsight, if people are watching this after seeing you know the whole season, they're watching it again. You you understand? Well, why doesn't Owen just fix this? Well, it's not that easy, and it's also not that easy because. Um, you know, Owen offered Xantos a choice. We'll get to this way down the road, but and the choice that Xantos took was Owen's service, and that doesn't include any magical abilities. Anyway, and I love Xantos's confidence. I almost, I always do. He hears the rules of the spell, and then, oh, set the sky ablaze. Is that all? Sure, let's do that. 
He'll lose robots, but he can afford it. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get that fun scene at uh, with Travis Marshall with the woman who is quote unquote clearly insane because she doesn't watch TV. Yeah, that, that's always fun for me. You know, it's like it's it's fun to look at it from up. like you know we're seeing everything through Elise and Goliath's eyes for the most part, and to see how the mundane. The muggles are are, are <laughs> experiencing all this. Um, it's fun to see the other side. Yeah, I think that's the uh, yeah. diamond exchange saleswoman from her brother's keeper. I mean, obviously it's not Diane Michelle Nichols doing the voice here, but it's the same character model. I didn't even yeah, I think so. Wow, good eye. But no, that's a fun little scene. Although um, I do like the mass hypnosis suggestion they're going with, but there's a part of me that thinks and um, I once heard a, a writer named Buzz Dixon say about cartoons and action shows, if you bring in too much real life logic it starts to fall apart, which I guess is true to a certain extent because even back then there were thousands upon thousands of security cameras in Manhattan and other things, so I always tend to headcanon that um Maybe the Illuminati was also working overtime or something similar to that, because this feels like a really to, huge to like thing cover to just it up. cover up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I mean, although maybe you know, all that footage exists, and people found reasons to rationalize it. There's yeah. There's another um, uh, a book series where people will see it wouldn't they they explain people will see these magic things. Then they go back and they're like, well, okay, maybe maybe I was exaggerating. My brain was going overboard. You know, I was hallucinating. And they talk themselves out of seeing these things that they've seen. Um, and that's generally what the general audience does in that um, in the book series. But um, uh, I, I would think that that would be a, a – I'm not everybody's going to grab a hold of it and go, look, I found this. Not everybody is, is bluestone, you know, um, most normal people just want the normal to continue. That ha- I recall that exactly <laughs> happening at the end of the Buffy, the vampire slayer pilot, where all those people, the bronze who were taken hostage by vampires. It was, uh, the master's top minion and they were rationalizing it after it was all over. Greg, I know you're a fan of that. I know you know what I'm talking about. I do. <laughs> I do indeed. All right. Let's flash back to a calm walk on a mountainside with two cousins who clearly barely tolerate one another. And their kids who seem to be getting along. <laughs> one of the um, things that, you know, I, I think that uh going. I think Macbeth has nothing against Duncan when this thing opens. Um, Duncan's the guy who tipped him off that Gilcom Gang killed his father. I think Macbeth is grateful to him and you know, I'm not saying he's thinking, well, he's the best guy ever, but I, I think there, I don't think Macbeth goes into this scene like barely tolerating Duncan. I think he likes Duncan. Um, feels grateful to him, etc. Uh, and is clearly loyal and has no intention of vying for the throne or anything like that. It's his cousin. Um, mm-hmm. Duncan is, of course, incredibly suspicious of Macbeth. Um, and I think the two kids are getting along at first, too, until 
the weird sisters, you know, start talking and then the kids start eyeing each other suspiciously, <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Yeah, I, I think Macbeth, when it begins, is just like, yeah, this is my cousin. He's a decent guy. You know, he's wrong. Macbeth is wrong, but we didn't know that yet. And I also wonder where all this originated from. Where did this come from? Why did Duncan feel the need to start all this in the first place? I mean, unless it's just simple paranoia. He's doing. If he were in Macbeth's position, he'd probably be plotting, and so he thinks that anyone else would be doing that. Well, part of it is, is the nature of um, kingship in Scotland in those days. Uh, in other words, there's a tradition of, in, of, uh, of inheritance. But there's also a tradition of, okay, all the thanes get together and decide who's going to be king now. Who's our best guy? And generally speaking, if all's going well, it's the son of the last guy. But that's not a lock. Um, and it's not going to be, you know, Joe Commoner off the street, you know, uh, Al Peasant or something like that. But, you know, among these royal families and Macbeth, Again, he's a cousin. Uh, he's also, they're both descended from the same king, right? So, you know, they've each got at least a claim to the throne in theory. But, you know, Duncan's next in line, in theory. Uh, and, uh, but from his point of view, if Macbeth even has a claim to this throne, he could be troubled. And then, you know, Macbeth saves his life when he didn't have to. I mean, it would have been easy enough for Macbeth to just, oh, I can't, hold on. (laughs) Even his own son could have been made to think that Macbeth tried his best, right? Um, Canmore would have testified, yeah, Macbeth tried to pull him up, just couldn't do it. But, and that's what Duncan's thinking. If it were me, I'd fake it. I'd make it look like... I did everything in my power to pull him up, but I'd make sure he fucking didn't come up, right? Um, but that's why he's so stunned when the cat saves him. Really <laughs> saves him. Risks his own life and saves him. And Duncan's like, oh my God, you saved me. And it's like, well, you'd have done the same for me. Right, yeah, sure I would have. Okay, yeah, you know. Um, and, you know, Neil, who's playing Duncan, is great at that, you know, um, and, uh, Neil Dixon. And, uh, so, you know, it it all is, I mean, it's all fun for me, but I mean, I think the idea is is that suddenly Duncan feels like, okay, um, I guess I really can't trust this guy. And then again, the weird sister screwed (laughs) (laughs) off. Like, like, he gets like a moment of I believe that uh, this that Macbeth is loyal, and then <laughs> right, and then suddenly you know there's this prophecy that all four of these guys are going to be king in turn. And the weird sisters don't say what order it's all going to happen, <laughs> but they're all going to get a shot at it, and um, and then also Macbeth you know asks a favor, it's like spared Debona and these gargoyles they. I owe them, so, and in essence, Macbeth is trading on the fact that he just saved Duncan's life, and so Duncan's like, oh, that's why he saved my life, so I owe it, you know, um, well, then it doesn't count, 
And at that point, he's like, okay, I'm going to kill these gargoyles later. I'm going to march my army on Macbeth's castle. Um, I thought I could trust this guy for a second. Boy, was I a dope. To even for a second think I could trust this guy. Um, so we'll fix that. That weird sister scene is the most Shakespearean scene in the entire four-parter. It is fantastic. Just the voice work from Kath Susi, everyone else. I mean, it, it could only get more Shakespearean if Banquo were standing there instead of uh, Duncan and Canmore and Luak. Yeah, I mean, we, we were at that stage, I'm sure, pushed by me just because I was the fanboy. Um, but, you know, we were like, okay, this is our one truly Shakespearean scene. Let's, let's, get under, let's get under everyone's skin here. And it clearly works with Duncan um, more than it does with Macbeth, which is, again, opposite of how it plays out in uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth. But, um, but it, in a way, in essence, it's more historical. Not that the scene is historical, but, you know, just Duncan's suspicions towards Macbeth are historical. Duncan, you know, uh, attacks Macbeth historically. Macbeth um, throws Duncan over in a big battle, and that's um, the history, which is not what Holland said wrote and not what Shakespeare wrote, but it is what, as far as we can tell, what happened? the best scholarship that was available to us in 1993 before. <laughs> um, that's Had to keep King James happy. So we, yeah, so we just, uh, you know, our fantasy aspects, our Shakespearean aspects, our gargoyle aspects, everything about that all still is trained on making the history feel real, you know. Um, and so, you know, these scenes that all lead up to the battle, well, the battle took place, we've got all these fantasy scenes and witches and gargoyles and blah, blah, blah. But all of that is just about leading up to an actual historical battle and, and trying to show the motivations of those characters going into that battle in a way that um, hopefully makes sense to the audience. It does. Although I do have one question about motivation. What motivated Duncan to take up the mask of the hunter to begin with? I, don't really think he needed it to be in that cave with his men shattering them. I mean, what was the appeal to him? I mean, why did he want to continue that legacy? I, I think it's just uh, it's a useful tool. You know, in other words, keep the gargoyles and, and the humans all afraid of this mysterious hunter. Yokon Gain's gone, but the, the persona of the hunter is still um, useful to Duncan. What he found not useful prior to this was that the guy wearing the mask was someone that he couldn't always control. So he'd say, hey, go do this for me. And, you know, Gilcom Gain did. Then he says, hey, go do this for me. And Gilcom Gain goes, no, nah, I don't think I will. Because I got stuff on you now. I'm going to do what I feel like doing. That was tremendously frustrating to Duncan, as we saw last episode, right? Um, mm-hmm. 
So now Duncan's like going, all right, but this mysterious vigilante, the hunter, who kills gargoyles regularly, which is, again, suits Duncan's agenda because gargoyles are a threat to him. At least he perceives it that way. And also kills the occasional human who uh, Duncan doesn't like. Well, you know, you put on that mask and it's not Duncan committing this murder or doing this deed. It's the hunter. That's useful. Um, But it's also useful that he no longer has to rely on someone else. He's the one wearing the mask, so he gets to do it. And, and, you know, he can count on himself in a way that he couldn't count on Gilcom Gang to always serve his interests, right? You know, one could argue that putting on the mask right there in front of a few of his men, you have to assume that those guys were truly loyal retainers and, uh, you know, who he trusted enough to, uh, for whatever reason, so they could see, he didn't mind them seeing him put on the mask and them knowing that he's the hunter. The redheaded uh, one, I believe, you know, never mind. I was about to say the redheaded one, I believe you identified as Macduff. Yeah. And that scene afterwards is great also. I mean, Demona is totally gone gray. Apparently she, I did the math, she actually aged rather prematurely. I can only count that on a miserable, very stressful existence because she looks awful at this point. And I love how she still thinks so highly of herself and so lowly of her new clan that she cannot perceive anyone else taking her place as leader. She even says that in front of her second Oh my gosh, like yeah. the, the hubris, just only I can lead um, mentality. Um, like, was she just going to do this until she dropped dead? Uh, probably, but um, she didn't trust anyone to to take the mantle from her. Right, because that's her, you know, I mean, that's the moment. Mm-hmm. She, uh, who can I trust except me? <laughs> the one who has screwed up her life the most herself <laughs> right. but she can't admit that she's the one who did the screwing oh, up yeah. either so no. so when if you're not admitting that then who else can you trust um, because everyone else lets you down one way or another okay yeah because I betray them all the time but we don't talk about that <laughs> after I got it <laughs> <laughs> And then we go on back to Castle Moray, and Bodhi shows up with another piece of great advice. I really, at this point in the series, I was like, can't we just kill him? He was annoying <laughs> me so bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, Bodhi to me has always been like this. Uh, on the one hand, I have tremendous contempt for him and then tremendous affection for him because he's so consistent. I mean, that's true. It's just, but it's like, yeah, I do this for us because otherwise, you know, you could go blow back on me and I don't like that, you know? uh, So yeah, go surrender and maybe he'll take pity on the rest of us here. Of course, he's kind of wrong. I mean, you don't get the sense that Duncan would have let Gilcom game live, right? Uh, Luak. Guy who's, I I mean, sorry, Luak, yeah. Yeah. you know, it, but Bodhi is totally willing to hold Luak up as the reason Macbeth should surrender. And, uh, and it always works on Macbeth or almost always, you know, 
Bodie says X, and Macbeth goes, all right, yeah. He knows. He always uses, you know, Gurlock and as a the ploy, like to get him to do what he wants, and uh, because Beth loves his family, yeah, um, and uh, so it always works. But uh, and down the road, we'll get to the SLG comics, and and you get a little more of Bodhi's origin, and becomes, I think, more sympathetic in hindsight. Uh, when you know how his life began. Um, yeah, but right now, by, he's so by, annoying. By all rights. Yeah. <laughs> no, all true. All true. On that note, there's a rant on TV Tropes' Gargoyles page, your, your mileage may vary sub-page, where um, there's this huge in defense of Bodie rant there that says, yeah, the creators say he's wrong, but everything he says to Macbeth is right. Maybe he should capitulate. And I'm thinking, okay, the person who wrote this clearly wants to live the life of a coward themselves, but <laughs> fine. It was just such a weird thing to read. I just... Uh... The, the one time I think Bodie is right is in this episode. <laughs> oh, the uh, emulate Richard III who hasn't been born for another so- few centuries moment, that one? <laughs> Okay, we'll talk about that in a bit. But but I do have to also say, Gruach, and I sent this image to both of you earlier, especially in this episode, she looks so much like Francesca Annis, who played Lady Macbeth in the Roman Polanski Macbeth movie back in the 70s. I absolutely love Um, Gruach's character design. I uh, honestly can't recall if that came up. I mean, I know I'd seen Polanski's Macbeth by then, um, but I'd also seen, you know, you know, a dozen others probably. Uh, so I don't remember if that came up. I don't know if like whoever designed the character said, well, let's base it off of Polanski's Lady Macbeth. Um, certainly possible, but I just, I can't recall. But yeah, I mean, when you sent me that photo of her in a, you know, even the color scheme seems to match. Uh, so it's, Clearly, could be true. Related but off topic, my favorite Macbeth movie, it's got to be the Orson Welles version. That one is just beautiful. Um, you know, I have uh, mixed feelings about pretty much every version I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, there's some aspects of every one that I like and some aspects of every one that, that don't work for me as well, you know, in my sort of platonic version of Macbeth that's in my head. There are things I want to see that things I don't want to see. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll see, sort of sort of see it with the weird Macbeth if the comic lasts long enough. <laughs> we talked a little bit about that last time. Still, it's a very heartbreaking, touching scene because I, Bodie just talks him into running out and uh, Kruk knows something is up, but uh, Macbeth is willing to give up his life for his family, which is a very noble thing, and he's doing it with courage. You know, and also I look at Lu- Luak here, I know we talked about that last time, but his hair, it looks like young Gilkengain's hair more than young Macbeth's hair, so I'm thinking about that in these terms and thinking, you know what, it doesn't matter. This is his son, no matter who was the sperm donor. Uh, and that's the way we wanted to play it. I mean, we wanted it to be throughout Luak's existence across these last two episodes of City of Stone. Um, who is the biological father? Could be Macbeth, could be Gilcom Gain, 
we're not going to state it one way or the other. Um, and it's not going to matter because from the best point of view, this is his son. He's raised him. He's his son. And the rest of it doesn't matter. And because in the history, um, it's unclear, uh, it leans towards being Gilcom Gaines' son. Um, but the dates, the timing of it, make either possible, particularly if Gurak and Macbeth were having an affair before Gilcom Gaines died. Um, so either are possible, but ultimately it doesn't matter because from Macbeth's point of view, this is his son. Oh, I totally believe Macbeth and Gurak were getting it on while she was married to Gilcom Gaines. I totally believe that. Jen, what do you think? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I absolutely believe that, yeah. Yeah, she was not a virgin when she got married, despite Bodhi's attempts to keep them apart in City of Stone Part 1. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with that. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I, I, uh, when they thought they were just going to get married before, you know, Bodhi said, no, no, we're going with Gilcom Gain and convince Macbeth to step out of the picture. I think they were probably, you know, um, waiting for marriage because that's what they anticipated. Um, you know, with excitement and all that, but, you know, that's, I think, where they were headed. I think that after living with Gilcom Gain for a period of years in something akin to misery, uh, that's when things may have shifted. And then I could totally believe that an affair began. But I don't think, uh, I don't think that either of them would have done that prior to her wedding to Gilcondon or her wedding, her anticipated wedding to Macbeth before things changed. All right. And now let's talk about the big scene. Macbeth and Demona meet again, and then the weird sisters pop up. Well, I just I love those lines where Macbeth goes, "You are the answer," and she's like, I'm, I'm uninterested in the question. In the question. <laughs> that is the best exchange. That is such a good exchange. Yeah, I don't know who wrote those lines. It, it, it could have been uh, Bran or Lydia, uh, or both, or it could have been Michael uh, or me, even I guess, but. Uh, I do love that experience. Love it. But she still doesn't kill him because she remembers who he is. Right. And then this is a key scene here when the weird sisters do show up is that, um, you know, when you look at the scene objectively, what the audience is seeing is the three sort of young women. They're sort of more beautiful or standardly beautiful, uh, personas of Phoebe, Selene, and Luna. But then you see them again from uh, Mac's point of view and they're three old human hags. And you see them again from Demona's point of view and they're three gargoyle hags, right? Um, and this was something that I had to really work to get. Because it's really important that we see them. And we got one of them. I forget which one. We got one of them. I said, no, but I need the other one too. And I actually had to go up to Tom Rizika. I remember this, 
who was head of production at Walt Disney TV Animation at the time, who was like, you know, do we really need this? And I had to sit down with him and explain to him, yes, we really need this. Because otherwise, it will not be clear that each individual is seeing who they expect to see. Um, and so it becomes one of these things, and we've talked about these things before, like, uh, you know, in the mirror and other episodes where it's just sort of like, uh, once you see it visually, it's incredibly clear, but when you're trying to just verbally describe it to someone, there, it's often very difficult for them to see why it matters so much. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was able to talk Tom into authorizing this extra payment so that we could get that little bit of animation for whichever one we were missing. The thing I've forgotten is which one were we missing. We got one in the original shipment and we didn't get the second one. Um, or we got the second one. We didn't get the first one. I don't remember, but the point was I needed both and Tom authorized it because I was able to explain why it was so important but it was, it was always like this little bit of extra work where I'm like, why is this so hard? <laughs> you know? um, why didn't I get it in the first place? Um, even though I'd asked for it, it was in the script. I asked for it at the storyboard stage and here we were getting animation back and we didn't have it. And, uh, but to me, that is a crucial thing to see that, you know, that, that the audience sees them as young women, that Macbeth and Demona each see them as, uh, uh, when you see it from their point of view, each sees them as uh, who they expect to see, which are these old witches or these old gargoyles. And the entire sequence is just stunning. Music, animation, and I remember hearing that it's difficult to animate horses, and on top of that, it's difficult to spin objects in animation 360, but you're doing that with Demona and Macbeth, and then with the weird sisters at a different pace, it's just, it's stunning. It was, it was really beautifully done. Yeah, it really, it's fun, sort of stunning little scene, transformation, you know, Macbeth giving his youth to Demona, um, the spell that they cast, which is a hint of what's to come, but doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily spell it, you know, make it obvious to the audience about how they share each other's pain and what it would take to kill one or the other of them. Um, is all, uh, it's all there fairly economically in that scene. And then you sort of end it with Celine giving a little extra gift to, uh, Macbeth, Celine, goddess of vengeance, you know, <laughs> setting well, up what she wants out of this. The, the thing that <laughs> Macbeth gives his youth and he looks old, but Macbeth never acts old. <laughs> he never acts like he's weak or that he really gave anything but his hair color. Um, because he's such a strong character, um, but I, so I, I, I feel like the exchange wasn't even basically. <laughs> as I, from what I understand, and I believe this is an ask, Greg, she was the equivalent of fifty-two. He was thirty-five. He went for, now. She's back to being biologically thirty-five, and he's fifty-two. So he's not that old. He's just gray. 
Oh, in his day, in his day, he's you know one foot in the grave. True, true. That's a long way back then. <laughs> I guess, but we also always viewed Macbeth sort of as our um, Batman stand-in. You know, um, the origins of his even being in the show at all was like, well, what if we made a villainous Bruce Wayne, and then from there we said, well, well, let's make some connection. Oh, let's make him a Scottish king. Oh, let's make him a Beth. All that stuff came in succession to the original idea, which is let's get a human with no superpowers, but who's a badass. And so, you know, the idea of a 52-year-old Bruce Wayne is right out of the Dark Knight, you know, Frank Miller's Dark Knight. Um, and 52 just doesn't seem that old. Now that I'm 59, it really doesn't seem that old. Yeah, I, but, I'm um, currently standing at 52, and Macbeth is in way better shape than me. <laughs> he leads an active life. I mean, look, <laughs> uh, to me, I think it's interesting because he gives up his youth, and she agrees to partner. But in essence, he's also agreeing to partner. You know, um, she just needed more incentive than he did. Uh, and he was willing to do that because his situation from his point of view was desperate. Now, of course, her situation was pretty goddamn desperate too, but she's never going to acknowledge that, you know, that she can't fix it, that she can't control it. So, uh, so she, from the point of view of the, of the exchange, she's getting more out of it than he is. Um, yeah, I've always felt. I, but, well, yeah, how, yeah, how many is left a, of her clan still at this a rock point? Fifty-two. What? How many is le- are left of her clan at this point? I mean, like we well, see I, the same like four, but I have to assume that there's more if she's going to be such a force that's going to turn the tide. Right. We assume, and I spell it out later in the comics. Um, that there are multiple cells, that it's one clan, probably about 40 gargoyles, give or take. Um, but instead of keeping them all in one place so that if someone finds the lair, they can kill all 40 at once, you know, if they find it during the day, she's um, split them all up into different cells so that instead of 40 or so or, or 60 or however many there are, um, you know, the most you'd be able to kill in any one cell is five or six. Um, and, but that's because she's having all of them live in, you know, split up the clan among multiple locations, multiple cells. Um, and when they all come together, that's, you know, an army of 40 or so gargoyles is pretty potent mm-hmm. uh, against uh, humans on horses with swords. Um, so it's a, it's not as strong a force as, you know, it might've been back in the day, Goliath time, but it's, uh, still something that can really turn the tide in the battle, uh, between Macbeth and Duncan here, particularly when Duncan isn't prepared for it. When we get to that fight, it's a great fight. Although I do want to, not to get too far ahead, you've got that great scene between Grok and Macbeth as they're preparing for battle. Oh, yeah. Sort yeah. Of the parallel scene to when he sang goodbye earlier. 
And there was one thing I really wanted that we just didn't get, which is I wanted her specifically to sort of touch his hair. And sort of uh. when, when she says, maybe this was a bad bargain, she's just looking at her husband who's 35 years old and has got shock white hair and thinking, I don't know if this was a good idea. Um, and we just didn't get her touching it. And it's a weird thing to me. Sometimes, you know, you ask for something with multiple stages of production. Sometimes you just don't get it. And this wasn't one I could sort of go to and say, look, this is essential. Like with the weird sisters, it, it would have been a nice, no pun intended touch to have that moment there connect up her feelings of doubt with the specificity of his choice and the gray hair, the white hair. But, um, we, uh, didn't get it and, you know, couldn't get it at that, by that time. So we let it go. And yet so much was put into this. I remember it was pointed out once that, um, Gruck, you could have easily used the same model that you used earlier inside of the keep it here. You've got her in a cape, you've got her in a ponytail, and that's a whole new character design as opposed to an actress who can just put on a cape and put a tie in her hair. You didn't need to do that. Yeah, you did. I These mean, little extras. You know, this was a tentpole for us, so we did what we felt we needed to do to try and uh, make it as good as it possibly could be, basically. Um, you know, there was a a lot of effort from every department. Um, and, uh, you know, don't want to underestimate Frank's contribution to all this, keeping all that, um, on the art side of things running and getting us so much on that level. It was, uh, um, a lot of work for him and, and he did a fantastic job, you know, just great. And then Demona arrives, and I love that scene where they say, Macbeth and Grunach say goodbye to each other a lot throughout this. And, he, and it's heartbreaking each time, but that whole fight bravely, it's the only way I know how, and Demona looks longingly at them, clearly thinking about Goliath. It's beautiful stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes it just all works. You're firing on all cylinders, you get the great writing, you get the great voice acting, you get nice storyboards and, and, and solid uh, animation and and it all sort of comes together with the music and everything and, and you wind up with uh, just some, you know, the feels. You wind up with the feels. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yes, you do. And then we have the battle and before we dive into that and I realize this is more of an artist question, Jen. I would love to hear your opinion on this because you're an artist. You hear a lot about color theory between good guys and bad guys, especially back in the days of Silver Age comics, and it occurred to me this time I'm watching it, you've got Duncan himself in primary colors. He's wearing red and blue. Those are hero colors, Superman, Spider-Man, etc. You've got Macbeth in green, and green is a secondary color mm-hmm. usually referred to use on, say, every Spider-Man villain. Lex Luthor wore green for a while also. I mean, it's accurate, Um but I, I, the way I looked at it, um, 
the the red and the the bright red and blue was more a regal thing. It was making sure we knew that he was the king. Um, putting Macbeth in a secondary color because he is lower down on the. We're supposed to feel that he's lower than uh, Duncan. Um, so that's the way I would have seen it, but I didn't color design it. I feel I feel this is a little bit unfair to Greg. I don't think this was exactly his department, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay, so we get to um, the fight and uh, the <clears throat> the one-on-one between Duncan and Macbeth. And, like, it's the final showdown. And uh, I love that Demona steps in. Like, she's going to handle this. This is what the deal I made. I'm here. I, I love that she steps in and then, again, steps out when he asks, when he's like, no, this is, this is, I got to do this. But then also catches yeah, the jerk that tries to run in and. <laughs> McDuff. Yeah. Yeah, it tries to stab him in the back. Um, and then McDuff majorly face plants against a rock. Um, it's fun. <laughs> um, but just before all that, there's also the first, you know, we, we have this two-step plan to name her. Um, and uh, uh, yeah. so step one is here where he says, you fight like a demon. You know, McDuff says that to Demona and makes her smile, you know. Um, and uh, so that line is sort of really crucial because it's going to come up a bit later. But, uh, you know, then we get this battle and um, and they're somewhat evenly matched, you know. You sort of assume, oh, well, Macbeth's just going to own this guy. But no, um, it's not going to be quite that easy. But then comes Celine's little uh, trinket, ball trinket, of doom. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he, as Duncan, is fried by this. But when his sword hits this thing, and um, it was really intense. Then, so okay, so okay, so yeah, so it's a right, horrific so, scene. The, the what happens and, to him is awful, and then he falls off a cliff. So uh, the idea there was we didn't think we could get away with yet another guy falling off a cliff. On the other hand, um, we weren't allowed to just stab him. So it's like, is there a magical solution? Yes, there's a magical solution. Okay, now the magical solution becomes so horrific that Adrian's like, you can't keep that body on screen. So it's like, okay, now he'll fall off the cliff. <laughs> but it's not the cliff that killed him. <laughs> <laughs> so it became this sort of dance where it was like, because she was like, can't he, just, can't he just fall off a cliff again? You know, she was like, can't he just fall off a cliff again? And we're like, oh, we're so tired of that. Well, what if we did this? No, you can't do that. What if we did this? No, you can't. What if we made it magic so that she's like, yeah, that'll work. You know, it's not imitatable. Um, you know, kids could grab something sharp and stab somebody, but they, they could grab something heavy and crush his head, but they can't grab magic and make him, you know. Make his eyes explode. Right. 
but it gets so right. It gets so uh, Akira in there, um, <laughs> in essence, that uh, but then at that point she's like, well, but this is too much, and we're like, well, what if he falls off the cliff then? And she's like, I said the cliff in the first place, and we're like, yeah, but not dying from the cliff. He's dying from this thing, but but then so. It just became a negotiation, is what I recall. That everything about that was fine, but we had to negotiate all these aspects of it to um, <laughs> make it play um, in a way that felt fresh to our audience, but uh, was acceptable from an S and P standpoint. Every few months, I will see someone on social media who's not even someone we know from the fandom just bring that scene up and post a screenshot of Duncan's head exploding from the inside out and how badass it was. You don't, even as fanciful as it was, you do not see this on American animation. I mean, maybe now with streaming and less no, standards it, it and practices. It was really well but, done, too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I... I mean, it wasn't like, you know, a, just a cheap shot. Like, it it was creepy, it was horrible, and it was really well done. Celine got her pound of flesh. That's right. Another Shakespearean reference. <laughs> it, and it was so great. And I'm thinking back also, just the entire, these medieval battles... Demona herself, how brutal she was. I mean, the other gargoyles are taking one human soldier off of a horse at a time, and she just plows into them and takes out at least yeah, a dozen at once. That was great. I love that. And then, you up, and, and then you up the ante again in the SLG comic, where, um, different battle, but she's snapping necks so while the others are just taking <laughs> soldiers off of horseback. She's enjoying herself a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> She's brutal. I love it. She's angry. Very. And then we get that little touching moment where she's beginning to look happy for the first time in a while. She realizes that the hunter is dead and uh, she and Macbeth The night are, is won. The, yeah, the night is won. Did Bodhi actually do any fighting, Greg? Was he actually out there? He just sat on a horse. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's old by that time. I don't think anyone expects him to do any heavy lifting. I, I like to think that when he really sort of got into the fighting, um, comes, uh, um, in the next episode. So we'll talk about Bodhi more there. Um, here right. I think, you know, he's probably holding back, keeping to the rear of the line now here comes the only good advice Bodie ever gave and that was kill Canmore it's what Richard III would do kill Canmore Did, uh, you know he's gonna be trouble later he's also got a claim to the throne and he lets him know it um, uh, I know it's it's a cartoon and we couldn't do that. But and I, historically, this is what happened. Also, and his, right? So, like, I just that was the only time I was like, "Wow, Bodie finally got it." <laughs> this is such a Ned Stark move well, to know, let him live. Bodie, Bodie is uh, 
pragmatic, if nothing else, you know. So Bodhi's always going to be offering um, the easier pragmatic solution that doesn't involve um, him having to pull out a sword and, and fighting anyone. But, you know, and, you know, he didn't kill Canmore either. He's just suggesting that Macbeth should. I just think his, the, Ed Gilbert's reading of that line is uh, is hilarious. It's like, uh, you should kill him now. You know, hey, hey, by the way, um, kill the kid. You know what's yeah. really telling? Demona wouldn't either, even though he gave her every reason to by coming at her with a knife. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Demona's feeling victorious, and and um, and so she's not feeling the need, you know, the kind of desperation that had her splashing Gilcom Gain's face in City of Stone 1, um, she's not feeling it right now. So, you know, it's enough to just threaten this kid. What she doesn't notice, of course, is that he's picked her pocket in essence and taken the mask. Punk-ass kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, Macbeth made the moral decision. He, uh... Wanted to be better than many other monarchs would be, but uh, it was a medieval world for a reason. <laughs> like I said, a very Ned Stark moment. Cersei, I'm going to give you this information I have and give you time to mount your forces against me, but I'm going to suggest you just flee. <laughs> and now a scene which is beautiful, but I also understand in some places it's driven you a little bit nuts because we get to the coronation, and shouldn't that have been elsewhere? Outdoors? It should have been outdoors, yeah. I, uh... Nothing in the research we did at the time indicated that it should have been outdoors. So it, it all things considered, doesn't drive me that crazy. But uh, after years later, uh, my dad and I went to Scotland uh, when I turned 40. Um, and we went to, um, we went to Schoon and then I, when I was there, I discovered that those coronations took place out of doors and that the Stone of Schoon was out of doors. Um, it wasn't housed indoors. Um, so, you know, my uh, retconning of that, which happened in the SLG comics, is that they basically had two ceremonies. There's an indoor one and an outdoor one for the crowd, <laughs> you know. Um, why not? So in the in the TV show we saw the indoor one, and then in the which is more historically accurate, but it was for the crowd, you know. So, um, and the stone was movable as it is now. Um, so, in theory, it's not it, it isn't necessarily wrong. I say, winking at you. <laughs> So now Demona gets her name. Yeah, so among the list of things that drive me crazy, this is pretty minor. Um, Because again, at the time, we were doing our research, we did the best we could, but we just didn't read. I mean, I'm sure there were books that said coronations were held outside, but none of the books that I had. At that time, none of the information that either Tuppence or Monique gave me um, 
specifically stated that they were outside, so we just assumed it was inside. And we were hey. wrong. Hey, oh, well. you know you know what? Charles is now king of England. He hasn't been coronated outside on the Stone of Destiny, which is coming back down to London very soon. I hope the Scots get it back quickly this time. So, uh, But um, who knows? I mean, I have no idea if he had an unofficial one indoors at this point either, but he's king. Right. So it all works out. And then what you get, you know, in essence, in between this episode and the next, is you get... 17 years, that's a long time, particularly from the standpoint of all the, you know, of Scottish history and all the usurpations and, and, and treachery and everything that, that the history of, frankly, most nations are, are full of. You get 17 years that was a real golden age for Scotland, where things were in such good shape and so peaceful that Macbeth actually takes a trip to Rome to meet the Pope. Now, we don't have that in the show because there just wasn't room for it. Um, And it was sort of off topic. But that's the thing. You get this coronation with Macbeth as king, Gruach as queen, and and Luach as crown prince. And again, his name should have been Luach, but we blew that. Um, But still, you get this royal family ruling Scotland and doing such a good job that there is peace for 17 years. And by medieval standards, that is ridiculously impressive. Um, And of course, if you read Shakespeare's Macbeth, it seems like the moment he takes the crown, it all starts to fall apart. Right. Um, there's no mm-hmm. even implication that it's 17 days, let alone years. Um, but, but things are so peaceful that Macbeth is literally able to travel to Rome. And in medieval terms, that is like... Going to Australia. You know, <laughs> yeah, or the moon. Uh-huh. Yeah, the moon, right? <laughs> and, and he showered the poor so there with money. Away. Right. It is so far away and, and communication is so difficult. You've got to imagine that, um, he really was a fantastic king. I mean, really great. Um, or else he wouldn't have been able to take that trip. Uh, and that's a story, the trip to Rome that I, uh, have ambitions to tell someday. I don't uh, have a specific like, oh, it's going to be an issue four of the Dynamite comic or anything like that. It's <laughs> not specifically. But, um, uh, but one day I do want to tell that story of the trip to Rome and what was going on in Scotland and what was going on with Macbeth and his family during those years. But 17 years of peace and prosperity for Scotland under King Macbeth that no one ever talks about. Well, which we'll I talk, just find, you know, kind of weird, stunning. Yeah, we'll talk about it more next time. But the relationship between, that Demona must have had with Gurak and Shrieks, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about it next episode. But um, I oh, we need to also circle back because Jenny brought up Macbeth naming Demona here, and what I like about that is the 
first time we hear Demona say her name on the show on Awakening Part 5, she's surrounded in flames, walking through smoke, about to kill Goliath. <laughs> it's a horrific moment. You almost think that she must have gotten her name after Demon there in such a manner. And instead you find out here it's a compliment about how well she fights and then, and it almost comes off as a term of affection. And she's so happy about it. <laughs> and I think all that's true. It is absolutely affection. You know, it, the thought crossed his mind during the, uh, <clears throat> the battle and that became the inspiration for the name. Um, and, uh, and she likes it. Um, you know, she wants, he says, they're going to learn to respect you. And she's like, well, I'd rather be feared. And they're going to do that too. And here's your name. And that works. You know, it's just, it's all working for her. Um, I, they even cheer for her. And like, just the look on her face when right? the, the humans are cheering for her. It's great. And she becomes primary advisor. She's not just a leader of her clan anymore, protecting the castle. She's a member of the administration, so to speak. Right. Not exactly right. So, of um, course, it's just a matter of time before she screws this. <laughs> well, I mean, no, no, to be yeah, fair, there's someone named Bodhi we'll there. That next episode. Yeah, we'll talk about that then. But uh, We'll get to the next episode. <laughs> she has help. But, yeah, I mean, but what you get is this golden age that Goliath was always wanting of human and gargoyle cooperation in Scotland for 17 years. And yeah, in the grand scheme of history, 17 years isn't that long. But then the lifespan of, of someone like Ruach, that's all he knows. He was a little kid. His dad fought a war. His dad won the war. And then things have been great right through his adulthood, you know. Um, and so for a huge group of people, this has just been the good times, right? Um, and we hinted that at the end of this episode and hinted at it at the beginning of the next episode. But there just really wasn't the opportunity to go into it in any depth. But I do think it's there. And, you know, I do think people should, if they can, stop for a second and just try and comprehend in medieval terms how long 17 years is. It is, you know, a lifetime. It is a generation. Mm -hmm. Or nearly so. <clears throat> and that is an impressive achievement and that was something that we tried to indicate that Macbeth really was a good guy he may be an antagonist for us now in modern day but he was a good guy very much so and then and a the really good king mm-hmm and then the weird sisters as serving wenches take us out of the flashback and then his cops bring us back to 1995 and that's one of my favorite of their cameos. There's no need for it, but it's just so great. It makes them feel all-encompassing. <coughs> like they're just everywhere. And here they are trying to comfort, uh, I think that's Billy and Susan's dad from Thrill of the Back. Yeah, the bad uh, yeah, night. I can't remember, but... Yeah, I, mean, I actually wish we hadn't put their hats on. The cop hats on. 
because I feel like, I mean, I think you get it and all, but I just would have preferred to be able to see their hair clear. Um, oh, that was clearly Phoebe saying we're here to help. Right. <laughs> I just think that hats were unnecessarily distracting, but I guess in the 90s we thought cops all still wore hats. <laughs> And then I love Elise's little confrontation with Owen. It takes me back to the edge where she's trying to get past him to get into the castle, and he just keeps darting in front of her. And here she's just not even going to put up with it. She's moving him aside, and then the sun sets. I I don't like Elisa in this at this point right here. Like at this at this scene, I don't like it because again she comes in with the same old like uh, as usual. It's your fault. Everything's Xanatos' fault. And like, I'm like, calm down from that. Like, come up with a different line. <laughs> like, yeah, we know it's going to be his fault, but you're like, <laughs> you're not. Well, helping. we're post metamorphosis. The talent wound is probably yeah, still very fresh. True. So, <laughs> very true. I, I, li- and, I love it. And let's like, face it. And the truth is, it is a, to a large degree his fault. <laughs> 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 I mean, yeah, Jamona's the big bad of this one, but but he enabled her. She doesn't get to this point without him uh, uh, being part of the problem. And like Chavez yeah. said, the FCC um, tracked the broadcast to Pack Media, so yeah. But yeah, the dance is fun. You know, they dance, they turn to stone. That's one way to end an argument. We use that line like eight times across the season, <laughs> I'm sure. And Xanatos is handy with a uh, blowtorch while we're in armor. Right, and then the gargoyles show up. And Goliath sees that Elise is there. Keep in mind, last time he saw her, she was... At the clock tower. At the and, clock and... tower as a stone statue. Now she's mid-wrestle with uh, Owen. And he's not happy. And Xanatos uh, goes, Owen sometimes has that effect on people. You know? It's um, true. It's true. <laughs> and then hypergolic gas I have no idea what hypergolic gas I don't know if Michael made I remember it was a Michael thing I don't know if he made that up if he looked it up I, but I was just like okay sure hypergolic <laughs> gas whatever the hell that is That's sure why not <laughs> maybe it's real it might be I have no idea and as usual nobody listens to Bronx yeah, or no Bronx. Hypergolic propellant. It's a fuel. <laughs> oh, it is. Had to cool. look it up. There you go. <laughs> it is a fuel. Someone's on top of things here. It's certainly not me. <laughs> I love how um, nearly 30 years in, I've never looked it up, but Jennifer just did it in two seconds. The Google The curiosity... The curiosity was going to kill me. <laughs> it's just like when she looked up what 20 grand is worth to the, would have been today. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and then, but it's like rocket propellant. So Xanatos just has rocket propellant. I'm sure like to, to power a suit and stuff, but it like it works. It totally makes sense. A gaseous version of a liquid fuel that's flammable. Um, but yeah, uh, the thing with Bronx is kind of a cheat because, you know, 
and I remember Michael and I talked about it, and it's like, does this work? Can we get away with this? Can we skate past this? Because, you know, Zanzos dismantled the entire castle and had it put together. <laughs> exactly. Is it possible there's a passage he doesn't know about and that when Bronx is, you know, clawing at that tapestry that Xantos wouldn't put two and two together and go, oh, yeah, there's a door back there. Um, and I felt like um, we both felt like this doesn't really make a ton of sense. But we're going to go for it, and it basically works. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we'll talk about it more next episode, but um, it basically works. And then she comes out, and she is super villainy in that scene. And then it ends, you know, this is a great cliffhanger. Now it's like Lisa completely vulnerable. Uh, turns cliff- stone, and she advances. A cliffhanger? Greg, how could you end the show right here? That's a cliffhanger. How could you do that? Don't you always end your shows on cliffhangers? (laughs) I'm sorry. I I felt that that would be therapeutic for you after all this time. (laughs) And yet you were wrong. And yet... All right, we're not going to go into that. If you want to listen to the full explanation, we have a long talk about that on our Reawakening podcast. Guys, go listen there. But no, it is fantastic. Just that slow advance. So yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, this was. So you know, we end the first episode on "Oh my God, the villains are in danger." We end the second episode on "Oh my God, Goliath and Xantos are actually teaming up." Now we have the third one. This is the first sort of traditional cliffhanger of, you know, of the three. Okay, now Elisa is really under threat as Demona advances and is about to smash him. And we all, we've we've just seen everybody leave the castle. They're gone. They're on their way. So I imagine Fox is in the most secure of locations. Um, But this is definitely sort of traditional cliffhanger. Yeah. Which I think is kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. We've got, you know, four episodes, so you're going to get three cliffhangers. And we managed to do two out of three with very non-traditional cliffhangers, which I think is a testament to, you know, how interesting our cast is, that we could get away with. You know, again, in the first episode, oh my God, Xanatos is in danger as our cliffhanger, and in the second episode, the oh my god is, oh my god, Goliath and Zamsos are teaming up. How is that going to work? You know? Um, that to me is uh, even more non-traditional. Darkly, yeah, non-traditional, and even subversive um, a little bit. Not a lot, but a little. Um, and again, you know, on a typical show, you'd be like, oh, okay, wait, you're ending here? <laughs> but for us, you know, that becomes a cool kind of moment. Tune in, same bat time, same but bat here, channel. Here we actually... Yeah, it, that was that that was definitely a, a gasp moment. So. It is. It's very effective. And even then, I remember watching this the first time and thinking, "Yeah, Bronx is probably going to come out." But even then, despite thinking that, it was still a gasp and a chilling moment. And it's a testament to just how well. It was done. The animation, the music, Marina's voice acting. She's really good at monologuing. Yeah. 
Oh, she was enjoying. She's like, oh, I'm going to enjoy beating the crap out of this statue. Like, she just really is like, I'm going to go for it. And I, oh. you're just like, oh, no. Oh, she's been waiting she for this. She tried to kill Elisa before and, and thought she'd succeeded, remember, with the poison. Um, and they kept that from her so that she wouldn't constantly be hunting Elisa. So now she sees her way. She didn't die. Well, I can fix that right well, now. Well, she well she saw her in reawakening again, and then in uh, the mirror. Yeah. Yeah, but, but now I'm she's got saying. a perfect opportunity. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it's, it's so. From her point of view, it's so uh, ironically appropriate. The method. But that's our show. <laughs> and it was fantastic, and we're gonna cut things off here. I think we've covered everything there is about that episode, about the episode. So, um, is there anything you would like to plug? I would like to plug Gargoyles issue one, which is out now. I mean, when we're recording this, it's not actually out, but by the time you hear this, it will be out. (laughs) And so everyone go pick up, you know, there's 78 covers to choose from 78 not uh, that is not hyperbole one of the there must, are actually one of, 78 yeah that <laughs> one of them must suit you if you're listening to this podcast you should be able to find one cover out of 78 that you really love they're all pretty damn great from my yeah. point of view but uh buy one hell buy all 78 i'm in favor of that um and then also this month um uh, the last issue of Young Justice Targets comes out. Issue six uh, comes out in print. Um, it's also available uh, on uh, Comicsology and on DC Universe Infinite. So uh, three ways to get that. Seventy-eight ways to get Gargoyles Number One. <laughs> and keep in mind, we want to make sure we got a lot of pre-orders on Gargoyles Number One. Over a hundred thousand. Um, I think it was close to one hundred eighty thousand. Yeah, um, it's pretty startling. Uh, but we want to make sure that the sales live up to those pre-orders. So, you know, uh, please make sure you get copies so that we keep going into issue two, et cetera, uh, as we move forward. Issue uh, two. Issue two, obviously, will be out in January. Yeah. I- issue Excellent. two, issue six, issue 12, issue 50, issue 100. That's right. <laughs> that's what we want let's make it happen and uh circling back to the young justice out of curiosity is that coming out as a physical trade paperback uh i i mean no one specifically talked to me about it yet but i imagine it will i mean that's just sort of the way of the world these days is that you know you do a limited series you do six issues they're probably going to collect it eventually i don't know when i don't but I am taking it for granted that eventually it will. But, you know, if you wait for the trade paperback, instead of buying the issues, it makes it harder to get the trade paperback because um, they think there isn't that much interest in it or else people would have bought the issues. That's right. So buy the issues. Yeah. Also, buy the issues for Garwell's guys. Not Don't just wait for the trade. Buy. Buy, buy, buy. <laughs> yeah. It's really true. I mean, if we want things like the SLG stuff collected and reissued and the 
Marvel stuff collected and reissued and, um, and to have this dynamite comic go on, um, for some time, then it's really dependent on people buying individual issues. If they're waiting for X or Y or Z, um, then they're just, you know, making it feel the powers that be that, um, there isn't that much interest, even if there is. So uh, we really need people to buy the individual issues. Sounds good. And on that note, this is coming up on December 16th. So to all our listeners, we would like to wish you all a happy Hanukkah, a Merry Christmas, a happy holidays in general. And there's plenty of Gargoyle stuff to buy for new fans and returning old fans, be it the comic, the NECA merchandise, the board game, which is still out there. It's... Uh, it's a good time to be a Gargoyles fan. A great time to be a Gargoyles it is. fan. It is. Definitely. Plus, there's this free podcast I keep hearing about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We should start charging for this. I'm Boy, kidding. You know, I'm going to tell you. That was, like a delay, I, that was a delayed reaction. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> long silence. Like, what's he talking about? What, <laughs> what, what, what podcast? Why am I not listening to this great podcast? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, we re- we really appreciate the comment. We really do. I mean, granted, you're just as much a part of this podcast as we are, if not more so, but still very nice to hear. Thank you so much. And, uh, and also to our listeners, really, at the end of the day, there's nothing without all, any of you. No listeners, no show at all. True, true. We appreciate yeah. We appreciate it. The feedback has been stunning. And Zach tells me we're the number one podcast on his site. And every other show is a Spider-Man podcast. So, uh, And it's a Spider-Man themed website. So uh, we're kind of usurping the webhead here a bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> My two great loves fighting each other. Oh, we'll talk about that radio play at some point. But, oh my gosh. But okay. again, but again uh, once again, thank you for listening. Happy holidays, all, and uh, join us next time for as we close out 2022 with City of Stone, Part Four. I am uninterested in the question. 